Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. It's the country's largest city and one of its oldest as well. Since before our records began, people have walked the shores of Brooklyn, New York, before it was Brooklyn, before it was New York, before it was New Amsterdam, when it was still fertile hunting and fishing grounds for nations whose names have been lost to time. Little wonder then, with so many men and women who have roamed its plains over the years, beginning and ending their lives upon them, that their presences are still said to walk the streets. Perhaps they still feel the summer grasses underfoot. Perhaps they still dream of the cool waters of the East River. Perhaps they still have something to say. To help us tune our ears to their whispers, this week on Crime Capsule, we're delighted to have with us an expert on haunted New York. Author Allison Huntington Chase, author of Bizarre Brooklyn, Stories of the Tragic, Macabre, and Ghostly, published last month by the History Press. Chase joins us from her adopted Brooklyn, where she not only researches the stories of its lost and restless souls, but she leads guided tours in search of them as well. This week and next, she'll be taking us around the borough on a whirlwind tour of its paranormal hotspots. So buckle up, and whatever you do, don't say I didn't warn you. Allison, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule, and congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. This book came out just about two weeks ago, and I want to start by asking just about the origins of Bizarre Brooklyn. How did this particular compendium of cases of the strange, otherworldly, macabre, tragic, and ghostly come to be? Well, um, with these history press books in particular, I've been a huge fan for years. I've been collecting them, and I always wanted to be a part of the series. It's the first thing I look for when I travel. Um, I have about 30 of them uh, in my apartment so I was immediately drawn to it because I saw that there wasn't a Brooklyn uh, book and I immediately wanted to be the one to write it because, again, I'm such a fan of the series. So I um, collected a bunch of stories. I have a trolley tour and we only are able to feature stories where we pass by those locations. But since Brooklyn is such a large area, um, there were many stories that we aren't able to tell on the tour. So this allowed us to um, put it all in writing and include all of Brooklyn instead of just a specific part. So it was nice to be able to uh, tell more stories, research more areas, and uh, really find out where all the bodies are buried throughout the borough. It's an enormous borough. I mean, just by sheer landmass, it is huge. and. Yeah there are a substantial number of cases in your book. I'm sure there are probably a few more bodies that are still buried that we haven't dug up yet. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how did you find all of these to begin with? Have you been sort of collecting them over time and sort of holding on to them with scraps of notes and so, oh, you know, got to check that later sort of thing? Or uh, was there a more systematic approach? How did you find your cases? 
So I've been researching for about six years of just Brooklyn stories. It started with the tour, but again, I've just been holding on to these tales and stories that I wasn't able to utilize before. I did most of my research from either articles I saw in books that I read. The cool thing about New York is that uh, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, which is the longest running uh, publication here, you can look up any article dating back from the 1800s. And New York Times also has a time capsule. So a lot of research was done reading old articles, podcasts, the Bowery Boys was a big help. I don't know if you've ever listened to them, but they're uh, a New York-based history podcast. Um, So it was really just anywhere I could find research. I found even if it was clips from like the History Channel onto, uh, you know, to obscure top 10 haunted place list, anything that I could get my hands on. There was no article or piece of information that I did not include into this book. So this book really is the full story of Brooklyn hauntings. If if there's something left out, it's because, like you said earlier, it was a body that hasn't been discovered yet. But when it does get discovered, that's book two. Or maybe maybe it happened after you published your book, right? I mean, maybe there is a haunting which is yet to occur, and that's the only one which is not included. Well, what's funny about that is, is that... Um, The way a lot of unmarked graves are found in Brooklyn is by maps being discovered. For instance, um, in our tour, we passed by a Staples that has 400 bodies buried underneath. Mm -hmm. But a couple years ago, we thought they were buried under the Whole Foods until a new map pointed out it was actually across the street under uh, the office supply store. So we're always finding different clues as to where bodies are, but... It's mostly maps that have been um, tossed aside and uh, we care more about the real estate than the bodies, basically. No, those discoveries, I mean, they're, they are absolutely a, a researcher's dream come true. I oh, mean, yeah. it just throws open a whole new world of questions and not always answers, but, you know, better and better questions as you pursue the search. I did want to ask you, Allison, where did your interest in the paranormal specifically come from? Were were you always kind of into the uncanny and the strange or was there sort of one particular moment in your background that sparked your curiosity? So I have been obsessed with ghosts, <laughs> I'd say since I was about five years old. Um, I, so there's two parts to this um, answer. I have the biggest phobia of ghosts, which I think is called plasma phobia. Um, And it made me, instead of wanting to have nothing to do with ghosts, I just became obsessed with it. And I wanted to know even more. It's like, it's weird. It's, I guess I was trying to face my phobia. So I've always been super intrigued by hauntings and, you know, fun, mm. like witchcraft and stuff. I was a big Hocus Pocus fan. Um, there you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that got me into the spooky spirit. But the thing that really drove me to um, get into this was that my parents started a haunted house in the 90s. I don't know if you mm. know about this. So my parents started a haunted house in our front yard. And the reason for this is my brother is a type 1 diabetic. He got diagnosed 
very young age, maybe three, four. So my parents, knowing that he couldn't trick or treat and get candy, decided to bring Halloween to him. So they set up this little um, tent haunted house in our front yard and just became so popular that it grew bigger and bigger every year until eventually my dad decided to relocate it to uh, the G Fox building in Hartford, which is kind of an abandoned warehouse at the time. Now I think it's a stadium or something, but um, it was like 10,000 square feet of haunted house. And I, I'm just guessing that number, but uh, it was so incredibly detailed. The different rooms would play on people's uh, phobias. There was like a clown room. There was a room where it was pitch black and the lights turned on and you were covered in plexiglass with like rats running around. Ooh. It was crazy. There was a snake room. There was a mortuary room. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. He did that for a couple of years and it was a charity event. So to tie it around, they donated all the money they made to juvenile diabetes after. So Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it became uh, a really big hit. Ironically, in the wintertime, even though we're Jewish, he uh, opened up something called Winter Wonderland, which was like mm-hmm. the Christmas version of nice. Haunted Happenings. It was, it was so cool. I was Googling my dad randomly a couple months ago, and he came <laughs> up on this article, and he placed 11 in the best haunted houses of all time. So Wow. Yeah. yeah Congrats, it was Dad. Fun. That's great. Yeah, he's a, an amazing event planner, if you will. He's kind of like the great Gatsby where he likes to set up the party and just watch from a distance. And I think that's how I got into um, the same type of setup. I I like to watch people enjoying it rather than just uh, also being a part of it, if that makes sense. It sounds to me like you... I might even dare say enjoy haunting a party without actually properly mingling with the guests. Exactly what I was trying to go for. Um, I'd rather be behind the scenes, switching lights on and off, scaring people than mingling. If I was a ghost, I would be a ghost that just kept to myself, hung out in the corner, occasionally changed the channel to Bravo. Quietly sipped her ectoplasmic drink. Yeah, no, I gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So last week we spoke to Darren Edwards, who is a history press author of a book about the paranormal of Southern Utah. When Darren describes himself as a faithful skeptic, he holds that questions and evidence uh, do not automatically rule in these strange, unexplainable events, but neither do they automatically rule them out. He likes to test, engage, and determine, and try to be uh, systematic about it, but he's also interested as a folklorist in why and how we believe in the paranormal. So what I was curious about, Allison, is where do you fall on this spectrum between sort of disbelief, skepticism, and full-on belief in the paranormal? Because it changes, in a sense, the way that you will write about Brooklyn and the stance that you take towards the cases that we're going to talk about shortly. I'm just curious what your uh, position on that spectrum is. That's a great question. So I always tell people, I don't know if I necessarily believe in ghosts, but I'm terrified of them. Mm. So I feel like that's an open-ended skepticism where 
I don't want to spend a night in a haunted house, but I don't necessarily think I'd see a ghost if I did. What you can see in my book is that all the articles that we quote from the 1800s when there's a haunting, I feel like people uh, used to just blame everything on ghosts. Like if something went Mm. wrong, they'd be like, a ghost did it. And this would be in like the New York Times. They'd blame anything that went wrong. It must be haunted. Are you saying they were labeling scape ghosts? Oh, I like that. I'm so yes, sorry. <laughs> they were. It was a it was a good pun. So I think ghosts are, in my opinion, ghosts are almost a comforting thing for people because a lot of times it's a ghost that they know, like a grandfather they think is haunting them or a family member or even a pet that's passed. So I mm. think it's a way to hold on to a person after they've gone and feel Mm. that comfort that they're being taken care of and watched over. Do I, at the end of the day, believe in ghosts? I'm not sure. I, I ask my myself this question all the time. I, Mm. I don't even know if I'd want to see a ghost because then I'd question everything, existence, whatnot, but it would be fun. Maybe if I saw a ghost like right before I died, I'd be okay with it. If you could pick the ghost, right? Preferably that ghost that stands in the corner of the party sipping her ectoplasmic drink rather than yeah. the one that comes at you with a bloody knife or what have you, right? Totally. I also, I would absolutely haunt people. I, I take that back. I wouldn't just stay in the corner. I would scare <laughs> the hell out of anyone I could, especially my enemies. But um, if I could pick a ghost to like hang out with, if you could hand pick like anyone, Mm. Mm. who would I pick? Um, Let me get back to you in about four hours tonight. Stew (laughs) on it, stew on it, stew on it. It'll come to you in the middle of the night, like a proper haunting. So let's talk about Brooklyn. You write in your book that part of Brooklyn's haunted nature comes specifically from its having been inhabited for so very long. I mean, we're talking Mm -hmm. hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years um, of settlement there. Now, what I'm curious about is how well known among your average Brooklynites are many of these particular cases in general. Before we get to the Brooklyn Bridge, that's where we'll start. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, how widespread is the literacy of residents of the borough about this kind of deep history that, or the, the depth of the dark history, shall we say? I think when you're in any urban setting, it's really hard to imagine that place as anything other than a concrete jungle. So when people hear even that this was all farmland 400 years ago, uh, it's really difficult to process when everything's such a city landscape. But of course, everything has to start with grass and then you build up. But I think people look at Brooklyn as starting with the factories in Williamsburg, Mm -hmm. not going previous to that. This was uh, Native American land versus inhabitants. It was sold to the Dutch. Mm -hmm. Brooklyn, uh, a lot of people think it means broken land. It was actually a name of a town. And then, um, you know, it exchanged hands, obviously got built up. What's interesting the most, and I think what people uh, find hilarious, is that Brooklyn is the nation's first suburb. People worked in Manhattan and lived in Brooklyn, commuted via ferry. 
it's officially considered the nation's first suburb. Also, we have the world's oldest subway in Brooklyn that people also don't realize is there because it's hidden underneath Atlantic Avenue. Yeah, you write about that one in your book. It reminded me a little bit of London with, you know, all of the closed sort of tube tunnels and that sort of thing, which are now buried both under the ground, but they're also buried in memory. Now, you you open your book with a discussion of the big one. And we have to start here. I mean, we have to absolutely cross the Brooklyn Bridge ourselves. Uh, Mentally, you write that it serves as a monument. It serves as an icon. It serves as a symbol. And it also serves as a graveyard. So why was the Brooklyn Bridge so dangerous over the years? Well, it was the longest expansion bridge at the time. So people didn't trust that it was sturdy enough to actually cross and use. Mm. It's funny because there was a big stampede and tragedy which killed dozens of people a couple days after it was opened and P.T. Barnum wanted to prove how sturdy it was. So he led 21 elephants across the bridge, which led to circuits (laughs) on the other side. So it was a complete, you know, um, PR stunt. But that inspired the children's book, 21 Elephants and Still Standing. Ironically, the bridge was built to hold more elephants than 21, Mm. if need be. There's actually in uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park, there's a fake monument that people don't realize is a joke. Okay. I think it's called like the elephant stampede incident of the Brooklyn Bridge, something like that. But uh, it's a, obviously it's not true, but when people read it, like stampeding elephants was a, an issue we had in Brooklyn or something. Just- I can kind of imagine if anybody would have created a, a an incident like that, it absolutely would have been Barnum, whose favorite anecdote that I've ever encountered was he once dreamed of towing an iceberg up the Hudson River so that he could watch it melt. He wanted to see a glacier firsthand, and so he tried to figure out how he could sort of lasso one from the North Atlantic Sea and then bring it back to New York as a spectacle. Oh, wow. But it never came to pass. Yeah, unfortunate. Should have Titanic. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, he could. It could have ended a lot of different ways. Um, so, so why was it so dangerous? Why was this bridge so deadly in its construction and in its use afterwards? What what made it so precarious? The main concern amongst workers was caisson's disease, which is known as the bends. The Brooklyn Bridge construction was so dangerous that they paid a lot for people to work on it as an incentive. And they usually lasted about 24 to 48 hours because it was not even worth the high pay. You could get paralyzed. You'd have blinding headaches, body aches. It um, it actually paralyzed the man who was building the bridge. Hmm. So his wife had to take over construction But the reason for this is, is because they had, um, they were called like water hogs. You basically had to go down in a caisson Mm -hmm. and to the bottom of the uh, waterbed with explosives (laughs) and you are in an airtight container. So the pressure builds up. It was awful. But again, there, it was such primitive ways of building at the time that there was no real way around it. So you were going to suffer if you were part of the construction, regardless. 
there was a worker who got decapitated during the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge and people claimed to see his headless ghost wandering back and forth. Mm. It was a popular place to jump from. Having said that, a lot of people changed their mind on the way over because of the traffic to the Brooklyn Bridge. The traffic saved lives, too, they say. Um, Yeah, it was not an easy thing to make, and a lot of people died from it. These sightings that you mentioned, I was particularly taken by the the headless workman. Um, There's something very sort of proto-romantic about that, in a sense. I mean, you you mentioned, of course, Ichabod Crane in your book, and that felt absolutely appropriate. But what, what do we know about uh, this particular workman or any of the spirits who seem to appear at strange times? Is there any identifying information about them, or have their sort of names and stories been lost to the river currents of time? Some are just nameless figures and some have a story to tell. For instance, there was a father of two children who was killed on Christmas, leaving two orphans behind. Things like that, after a while, they become more statistics than people. I think it sounds awful, but throughout history, we uh, don't really take in their names as much as just points of death or tragedy very quickly in passing. But with this, the headless ghost in particular, wandering back and forth, but you can also, people claim to see these flashes of light and orbs Mm. going back and forth Mm. and loud screeching. So there's four different types of hauntings we talk about. Um, And the main two are residual and intelligent hauntings. So usually residual hauntings are met by a sudden death or tragedy, which would obviously be someone being decapitated. Mm -hmm. But an intelligent haunting is a ghost that wants to communicate with you. So hearing that he'll make himself known makes me believe that he's under the intelligent haunting category. There's a news article um, about him. But having said that, when we were speaking early about Quezon's disease, the number was way higher than it was reported. So obviously, when you're building this bridge, you don't want bad publicity either. Mm -hmm. So they really downplayed to the public how dangerous it was and how many people actually died. So like you said, as time goes on, we'll sometimes get more information. Things will be brought to light, but we'll never fully know the true extent of it. But we can make guesses based on the information we do know. At least 100 people suffered from Quezon's disease. I'm sure it was double that. But um, it's one of those things that will always remain a mystery. You do write that there was a more recent sighting or a more recent paranormal event. And this is veering just a little away from our normal sort of subject matter here on Crime Capsule. But you mentioned in the context of the strange happenings of uh, unexplained perpetrators in the region that in 1989, there was an abduction of sorts. And I was curious, uh, first of all, what do we know about the documentation for that particular incident? And secondly, has there been anything in the 30 years since then? That seemed to be 
the last incident associated with the Brooklyn Bridge in your book. And I was curious if there had just maybe been something that wasn't as well documented or we didn't know as much about. And so it really didn't justify a conclusion, but still kind of left that door open for you as a researcher. So what can you tell us about 1989 and what can you tell us about what happened since 1989? So in 1989, a woman named Linda Napolitano claimed she was abducted by three gray aliens and taken to their ship. And I I feel silly even telling this story, but apparently it's the most (laughs) witnessed uh, alien alien abduction of all time. Um, I mean, I asked, so you don't have to feel that silly. (laughs) I mean, it's so silly, but... People really hold on to this story. Uh, there have been, there's even a book written about it. It's been in Vanity Fair articles. There's been artwork made about it. Anyways, Linda claimed that she was abducted in her bedroom right next to the Brooklyn Bridge on the Manhattan side. And uh, it was witnessed by 11 people who separately each uh, told their account of it, including two security guards from the United Nations. Now, I need to put a little disclaimer right here. This isn't the first time that Linda's claimed to be abducted by aliens. So, gotcha. They didn't all happen on the Brooklyn Bridge, but I guess they were targeting her. If you uh, look further into the story, it gets crazy. So, one of the, um, a year later, one of the security guards who witnessed this event ends up kidnapping her when she's like out jogging. The story is absurd. I don't even go into those details Yeah, because it, you know, veers off from the Brooklyn Bridge. But um, I don't know how um, credible Linda is. But again, there's these 11 witnesses who Hmm. they weren't, you know, a group of 11 who told the Mm -hmm. story. They were individuals at different locations during this sighting. Um, So it's a it's a fun story to think about. Do I believe it happened? Why not? <laughs> how generous of you, Allison. How very generous <laughs> of you. Um, so anything in the last 30 years since that moment, or is that kind of the last main unusual occurrence that we know of? You know, I don't think this story could take place today with all the camera phones. Hmm. But what I was touching upon earlier was, unfortunately, since the very opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, it's become a popular suicide spot. And that's still an issue that goes on today. But people credit the traffic going to the Brooklyn Bridge as a way of saving people's lives because it gives them an hour to really think about it Mm. um, and turned around. So traffic's not always bad. I did see my first dead body on the bridge, Mm. which is crazy. Uh, There was a car accident. um, Oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah. That's passing. But just being on the bridge alone is so powerful, knowing just the significance of it. And you can see the Statue of Liberty while you pass. And it you can't forget you're in New York and how lucky you are to be there. People have literally died trying to get the view of the Statue of Liberty with their own eyes. So I don't take it for granted. I always make an effort to look out the window and just see Lady Liberty yeah, it's a shame for people who go across the bridge and don't take in the historical significance. And again, people are passing it every single day and to them it's just another bridge. But uh, at least the tourists appreciate it. There's definitely um, the fair share. There's a walkway on it. 
Mm-hmm. So it's always um, crowded with people. And it's a nice walk. It's a great way of exercising. I think it takes maybe like 20 minutes Yeah, yeah. to go to one side and back. You end up in Dumbo, which is really nice. It's where the Etsy offices are. Um, so yeah, it's a really trendy part of Brooklyn. Very expensive. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Well, next time uh, our listeners are there, perhaps they will say a small prayer or bow their heads in reflection for those lives that were lost in its construction and uh, watch out for any workmen to make sure that they have their hard hats fully on and secured. Because otherwise, you we'll never have know. two headless ghosts. There's another ghost that's been spotted that dates back to 1951 on mm. the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a beautiful young blonde girl dressed in all white, which for the record is how 80% of ghosts are described. Right. All white dress. Right. Beautiful young girl. Um, so she seemed crying at the edge of the bridge. And when people go over to see if she's okay, they can see that she's transparent. Ooh. And they can also hear screams and splashing water when she's sighted. So she's been around for a while. Um, and I would mm. categorize her under residual hauntings. Okay. Because she's clearly repeating the same actions or events. But is not necessarily seeking to engage the passersby or to, right, uh, communicate something. Hey, these distinctions are useful. The taxonomies have their purpose. And I I think they are are more than welcome in, in this neck of the woods. So let's get a little deeper into the borough itself. And I would like to take just a a whirlwind tour of, you mentioned your family association with haunted houses earlier, and there are a number of good haunted houses in your book, which are worth stopping into and feeling a little thrill and a little chill down the spine. Um, Let's start off with uh, one which is perhaps a little bit more benign uh, than some of the others that does not uh, have any murderous intent uh, behind it. Uh, You mentioned the Lefferts Laidlaw House in Clinton Hill. Now, this is a fairly early haunting, isn't it? This is a sort of 1870s compared to the more recent ones. Um, What happened and what is happening at the Lefferts Laidlaw House in Clinton Hill? Well, there was a very spooky game of ding dong ditch with a ghost. They uh, kept having their doorbell uh, wrong. And by the way, doorbells just came out at the time. So yeah. Yeah. you and I, it's probably a faulty, faulty wiring. Instead I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then, everything's a ghost. Um, even the newspapers were reporting that it must be a haunting. Mm. At this time in history, uh, spiritualism was huge. Uh, it's mostly 
derived from the fact that people were dropping dead very quickly from the Civil War and families didn't have the time to mourn or say goodbye. So they turned to seances, Ouija boards to try to communicate with their dead loved ones. In New York State, uh, they even created an entire town called Lilydale, New York, specifically Hmm. to house the various uh, mediums and psychics. It's still around today, and the uh, residents are frequently tested to make sure that they're qualified to live there, Hmm. that uh, their abilities are legit. Interesting. I'd love to know what that entrance examination looks like, but we carry on. (laughs) What number am I thinking of? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yes, so... They blamed everything at this time on ghosts or hauntings, demonic possessions. Um, Again, instead of a faulty, wired, newly designed doorbell, it must be the spirit world. Hmm. Um, But they they also claimed to hear banging on the doors, knocking. And this continued throughout the week. They tried to uh, find the culprits by sprinkling flour and ash to see if footsteps would appear. None did. You know, I thought that was fairly savvy of them, actually. You know, I had to give the homeowner credit for that. It's like, that's a pretty neat trick if, if, you know, we don't have um, access to camera equipment and in sort of any ready fashion the way we do now. It's like, okay, if you're going to hunt for a, for an intruder, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that made, that made a lot of sense. A little flower trick. Well done, Edward Smith. Well done. Right. They didn't have the, what is it called? The ring bell? The Oh yes, the video the video doorbell, of course, yeah, which yeah, everybody has nowadays. <laughs> yeah, the bane of ghosts everywhere. <laughs> exactly. So that yeah, so they brought in the head police chief, and he went around the house trying to see if anyone was pulling any pranks. He couldn't find anything, and then apparently a brick was thrown out of nowhere. I guess there was mm. just a brick lying around, and it was thrown into the window and smashed it. So people, um, because the newspapers were reporting of these ghostly activities, uh, people started showing up at the house Mm -hmm. asking if they could perform seances, which he um, denied them. Mm. So they would do something called like mini seances on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. to try to communicate with them. The police tried to move them. A big German man bit his finger. Well, you know, the go to protest. Have you ever tried to move a large German man? I mean, I, I have. It did not end well. See, when I so. try to do it, it goes very smoothly. Oh, right. I'm okay, just fair enough. But if I were to ever remove one, I know to bite their fingers. Wait, no, that's the opposite. Anyways, so <laughs> sure. um, they, they believed that it was haunted by a man who was a lawyer who reportedly had killed himself in the house and it was his ghost that was haunting it. So the owners decided to say a strong prayer to rid the house of the devil. And apparently it worked. Hmm. That solved that issue. That was the end of that. So let's take another stop on the tour. I have an incident in your book, which is we're going to we're going to increase the temperature slightly as we trolley along on these stops mix all my metaphors, but you, you see what I'm getting at. Uh, we're going to visit the Lovecraft house, which had a slightly more active presence, which was slightly harder to identify. Tell us, first of all, how that name came to be attached uh, with the building, because that does matter. And then tell us about its least bodily inhabitant. 
Well, H.P. Lovecraft, famed sci-fi and horror writer, uh, lived in Brooklyn in the 1920s. Now, he was a gigantic racist, the yeah. biggest. Um, yeah. <laughs> and at the time, Borum Hill uh, was called Little Syria because it was uh, a large Syrian population and because it was close to the docks, many immigrants lived and worked there. It was mostly a shanty town, which is the furthest thing that it is today. Now it's a very upscale neighborhood. But um, for someone so racist, I don't know why he decided to move to that neighborhood. Mm. Um, but he hated it so much that he wrote a story called The Whore at Red Hook. He even starved himself in the apartment because he didn't like it. Again, he oh, can wow. move at any time. He guess didn't want to give up his lease. They always say that the neighborhood changes around them. Remember, you know, it's like they have always been there, the the old racists. And it's like the, the neighborhood is always the thing that changes, not them. So anyway, we see that a lot in, in the South, but yeah, moving right along. <laughs> so yeah, he, uh, he hated it. He described the uh, forgotten Atlantic Avenue tunnel, which we mentioned earlier was the oldest subway. Mm-hmm. He claimed it was roaming with Persian vampires. I mean, he was crazy. You know what I mean? And I mean, I guess that is good for writing sci-fi and horror, but um, he only lived in Brooklyn for a year, actually. And years ago, in modern times, a woman named Nellie Kurtzman took over the apartment. Now she's the daughter of the uh, founder of Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm. I believe her friend lived in the building, not in H.P. Lovecraft's apartment, Mm-hmm. but above it. And she told Nellie that the family who had lived there just got up and vanished one night and was never like seen or heard from again. So mm. the apartment was vacant and she wanted to move into it because it's a really good apartment in a really nice neighborhood and has a, you know, a famous former tenant. Mm-hmm. So before she took over the lease, her and her friends decided to do a seance, which is a big no-no. Right. No. <laughs> Not in that particular apartment of all apartments. You probably are going to meet some of the elder gods who will then feast upon your dreams as, you know, food for their immortal souls. But It's funny because she claimed that he wasn't happy with her there because she was Jewish, tying into the racism he had. Ironically, ironically, though... H.P. Lovecraft was um, friendly to Jewish people, which was due to the fact that his best friend was Jewish. So Hmm. they were the only... um, Acceptable that is sort of... Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so they did the seance and they asked him a question and he just wrote out brick. And it turns out one of his friends had stolen a brick from the apartment as a memento. He was a big H.P. Lovecraft fan. So Nellie moves in with her roommate And suddenly strange things start to happen. The bedroom doors are opening and closing. Strange smells are coming from the kitchen. She had this um, painting that was framed and hung up on the wall that crashed down. And she started having nightmares about the person who gave it to her. Her credit cards would go missing. Um, And then when she got new ones, they'd show up again. And uh, she still lives there, though, because, again, great apartment. Just got a ghost problem. That's what I wanted to ask, which is that in your account, there's this kind of tantalizing moment where the story doesn't end. You you sort of 
cease your discussion of the Lovecraft haunted house right smack in the middle of Nellie's residency there. And I was wondering if there was a reason for that. There was no sort of, and then Nellie moved out after she found that the ghost had been taking her credit cards and going down to the bodega (laughs) and buying lots of great snacks, you know, so you kind of leave us hanging there for a second, which is interesting. Yeah, he didn't scare her out. Again, we will take a great apartment over a ghost haunting in New York. And you can read about that in the book. (laughs) So I feel like we should charge ghosts rent. Yeah, it didn't scare her away. I think it, it would be so cool to brag about a celebrity haunting your apartment. But she seemed to be in good spirits about it. I'm sure she's still there living it up. Surely the property owner would take that as double occupancy and cause to raise the rent, right? Exactly. You'd think. The thing about New York is, for instance, I live in a brand new apartment. It's a couple years old, but I'm right off Livingston Street, which used to be farmland and many people were buried around here. And again, Mm. we don't know what we're building over unless we happen to come across, you know, bones, which happens quite a lot. So it's spooky, but I just feel like There's such chaos in New York City, so many people on sidewalks that we could be passing a ghost and not even notice it, you know? I feel like we take the history in Brooklyn for granted, as I was saying earlier, because we're so used to it, seeing it as a metropolitan city. We don't realize that it's, there's been more time it wasn't a city than it has been. You know, again, it was Dutch farmland before that, it was native land. So yeah, we're kind of ashamed that people don't, Think about who came before us because they're the ones who paved the way, no pun intended, for uh, our current residents. Also, Brooklyn, you'll see that a lot of neighborhoods have hill in it, like Borum Hill. Walt Whitman described it as Ample Hills, which the ice cream company is named after, but it was eventually leveled out. So again, we see it as just flat city land, but it's changed a lot. Let's take a stop at the third haunted house on our tour. And that's a little bit of a misnomer because this haunted house is actually a huge apartment complex, which is (laughs) haunted. You mentioned one, two, three on the park. And before we get to the queen of them all, I just thought it would be nice to, uh, to take a look around this one because like so many of the sort of classic locations for paranormal lore, you know, the old insane asylum or, you know, the old prison, you know, sort of thing. Here you have the old renovated hospital, the Caledonian. Really interesting because you write that the cases here are extremely recent. Actually, they are within the the last 10 years, aren't they? Yes. So Caledonian Hospital served Brooklyn for about 100 years. Uh, It's on the the border of Prospect Park. So Prospect Park used to have a zoo that featured polar bears and lions. And when people would get attacked by those animals, they'd go to Caledonian Hospital. Convenient. Exactly. Uh, I believe Dodgers players would get surgery there. It was a legit hospital. It was famous. It was one of the top. It eventually closed and it was used for many years. It was used as one of those crime show backdrops. Sure, Law and Order. And then Law and Order, Law and Order. After it was closed as a set, it was turned into apartments, luxury apartment building. I've been inside it. 
It's really cute. They did a great job of masking that it was once a hospital. But people, especially when real estate agents would take them, they would leave out the fact that it was a former hospital because it is spooky. Hospitals are notoriously haunted. I mean, people die there all the time. There's morgues. So yeah, these hauntings started to occur and the people to notice it at first were the doormen and these hauntings occurred so frequently that they had the highest turnover rate of doormen because no one wanted to stay due to the hauntings. Now, some of the things they experienced was that the motion sensor lights would go on one floor at a time. No one was actually there when that would happen. The basement, which was the former morgue that is now laundry room slash gym, they would feel like someone was watching them. If we're debunking some ghost hauntings, uh, people claim that the doorman left so frequently due to the fact that the other buildings were just paying a little more. But as for the residents themselves, they claimed, kind of like Nellie Kurtzman, that Strange smells were coming from the kitchen. Cabinets were opening and closing. They felt watched, strange noises. And so they tried to take advantage of the situation and get their rent reduced uh, due to the hauntings, which didn't work, but good for them for trying. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah, give it a shot. I'll say this. I mean, when I read this this account in your book, the, um, you know, doormen are kind of interesting because I, I couldn't come up with like any any general reason as to why, you know, employees would lie. I mean, you know, like what, what does it benefit them to lie about this? Because then they're losing like a really good job in New York, right? Which is hard enough to come by to begin with. So, you know, the sort of the motivation for kind of fabricating the the tales seemed a little, a little iffy to me, but um, really that, that sort of description of like motion sensor lights just appearing in sequence when there's nobody actually in the hall. Okay. I got a little chill, just a little chill there. Um, I'm willing to admit Yeah, and they gave uh, New York Post interviews. They weren't shy about it. There Mm. were these two girls who lived in the building that didn't want to give their names for the interviews because they were afraid the ghosts were going to be upset and follow them or something. Like, people get really superstitious, and I wouldn't live there. That's a fair, uh, you know, in Louisiana, if we do say, wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. So there you go. Um, Last stop, and we're going to wrap this week up. I don't even really want to go here um, <laughs> because it is so spine tingly, but we kind of have to go here um, that the, the champion of all of the haunted houses in uh, your account, which is Melrose Hall. And man, I tell you what, this one had, as far as origin stories go, yeah, you can't top Melrose Hall for like how it got its start you know, as a yeah. site of some spooky dealings. Yeah. So take us there and pardon me while I cover my eyes and go hide in a closet somewhere. <laughs> well, Melrose Hall was a large house built in the 1700s by a British loyalist and it was used at times as a prison for patriots who were captured. American soldiers, that's what you're saying, during the war, American soldiers. Yes, American soldiers. And they were held captive there. Obviously, many died. There were also slave bones that were later found in that area, too. So it's um, thought to have been a prison for slaves as well. Now, there is a story inside that 
Futures, one of the house servants, which I think is their way, a glorified way of saying slave. Yep. But anyways, um, there was this man who lived there and he uh, started to have an affair with one of the um, slaves who worked in the house. Now, some sources say she was a Native American princess who had saved him from death and he brought her to the house to repair or something. There's different um, origin stories for her, but they ended up having an affair and he hid her because he has a family and wife who also live in the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, He hid her in a chamber in the house and he took very good care of her in sense of um, he fed her, clothed her in a, a higher sense than other house servants. They were in love, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And one day he got called away to go fight in the battle. And he was going to be gone for about a year. So he told another uh, servant in the house of her existence that she was living in this hidden chamber and that she needed to be fed and taken care of while he was away. And so she did. She um, Every day she would go in, give her what she needed held her promise. Now, one day she uh, fell ill, the woman who was taking care of her. And while she was in her deathbed, she kept trying to tell people around her that there was a woman hidden in the walls, basically, and she needed help. Obviously, they thought it was the fever talking and that she was just talking gibberish and no one took her seriously. I mean, you basically check your copy of Edgar Allan Poe's collected short stories and you make sure that that story has not been lifted out of one of those. Because, I'm, you know, as I was reading this, I was like, Poe. Eat your heart out, man. I mean, like I know, this is right? this is like his level of of fiction here, except it was true. Yeah, right? yeah. crazy. Yes. Yeah, so um, the woman passed away, and his mistress was left in the room. She basically starved to death. She was beating on the door, screaming for help, but no one heard her. Now he comes back a couple months later and asks for the servant who is taking care of her to. Um, let him into her room and he finds out that she died and of course in a panic stricken mode runs right to the door opens it and her skeleton falls out right onto his lap of course he's devastated and of course (laughs) no he should have um had a backup plan you know like tell somebody else (laughs) that he trusted come on (laughs) he didn't think ahead on this one so so her body was revealed and everyone in the house found out the story so a couple nights later they're having family dinner and all of the lights blow out meaning candles and her ghost floats in and starts blaming um him for her death which rightfully so is Right. (laughs) Yeah. And again, this is in front of his wife and children. So at this point, they are caught up with who this ghost woman is. Then they hear a scream. The lights go on and he's been stabbed with a sword and bleeds to death right there at the the dinner table. Mm -hmm. The house is actually knocked down right now, but... Before it got knocked down, they claimed that every time there was a party or event, she would kind of make a cameo. Ooh, very nice. This would be an intelligent haunting, making her presence known. Hmm. 
You know, Allison, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to suggest just very modestly that there are a couple of lessons in that particular story, and all of the lessons are don't do any of that. Just don't do yeah. ever, ever do any bit of that at all. Like everything yeah. that he did, don't do it. Just none of it. Right. Like that's all the lessons that, that we need to learn. And we're done here. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't the best guy. Yeah. But, you know, hey, it's a story and it's a, a spooky one. I love a revenge story. They're very satisfying. Yes, they are. They are exceptionally satisfying. I mean, of course, you know, if we put on our debunker hats, um, there are elements of there which, you, you know, can be read as more fanciful or more romanticized, you know, than others. Oh, sure. the, the, pr the princess aspect is particularly rich, um, you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it is interesting because... Conveniently, as we have seen in a number of these other accounts, and as we discussed with Darren, you know, last week, part of the appeal, part of the, the lure and the mystique stems from the fact that the property no longer exists. And so now it is absolutely unverifiable in any way. We could not find the hidden chamber, even if we wanted to. And so we are, we must believe that it is there because we have no other option, according to the, you know, the documentation. The thing that gets me about this one, though, is that the history of the house prior to this particular incident with the prison cells underneath, the skeletons that, that were found, the chains, even after this murder, ghostly appearance, et cetera, took place, uh, you write that those prison cells were not discovered in the property until much later so that the house was actually like resting on this defiled ground for decades and decades and decades without anybody knowing about it. Now that is truly chilling, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it, we w probably wouldn't have even discovered it if it hadn't been knocked down. That's the thing. It's like you can have the ghost part of the story and choose to believe it or not, but the facts of there were chains and bones that were discovered is um, just a historic finding, regardless of if you believe in the ghost or not. So it also just really emphasizing the grisly past of Brooklyn, especially during the Revolutionary War, which people don't realize essentially started here during the Battle of Brooklyn. So um, yeah, it sheds light on the fact that People, especially with slavery, don't really uh, talk about it in Brooklyn. It was abolished here in 1826, 27. But a lot of unmarked graves did belong to slaves because the practice wasn't to put a proper headstone up. I believe it was a 12-year-old slave girl that was discovered uh, recently in Brooklyn because they read the diary of her owner, that said she was buried in the front yard. So that's how we also locate things through diary entries, not just maps. But that's why also we have so many unmarked graves because not everybody was treated uh, equally. We're still discovering it and we'll continue to discover it. Well, we will pick up uh, next week right there. In the meantime, if you don't mind, I will go hide in a closet under a blanket, you know, with like 18 padlocks on the door uh, while I, I let these spectral presences pass by. And hopefully once the coast is clear, we can meet right back here and continue. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Allison. It has been a pleasure and a terror. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. 
Our guest has been Allison Huntington Chase, author of Bizarre Brooklyn, Stories of the Tragic, Macabre, and Ghostly, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org slash shop slash crime dash capsule. Join us again next week for the rest of our conversation with Allison, who takes us, among other places, to Coney Island, where the lines between the normal and the paranormal may never again diverge. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.